Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here too. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Um, I'm wondering if you had a suitably frightening Halloween weekend in preparation for this immensely frightening week. Uh, Well, let's deal with this immensely frightening week in a minute. (laughs) I suppose, actually, the frightening thing about Halloween this year was whether it would happen at all or whether everybody would be too frightened, not in a good way, to do it. But actually, I walked the streets a bit to see what was what and we put out our our own pumpkin. And, you know, people people were still having fun. They were being very inventive. There was a lot of good decorations uh, around, around our way. And some people had put a sort of table out in front of their door, which is to say... Please don't trick or treat, but here are some sweets, you know, and done some great decorations. And then one house I was struck by had done a lot of decorations and all over their door, big skull and crossbones and a big, huge sign saying, we are self-isolating, keep out. And you think, is that real or is that a joke? Are you OK? Um, I think people here did, there was something here um, where you you had to put a small pumpkin in your window uh, and um, I don't actually know quite how it worked, but the children who would normally have been doing their trick or treating had to... Uh, find all of the pumpkins in the, in the area uh, and then someone judged it and whoever found the most won something. I think, I think yes. I'm a bit sketchy on the no, rules. I think the idea gathered, was but... <laughs> that for every pumpkin that the, the children spot, then their parent gives them a sweet. Oh, I see. So it's the parents. So unless the parents are incredibly virtuous and give them a carrot stick or something, <laughs> you just got, you got your sweet. <laughs> My sister once did that. She had a selection of crudite or, or um, yeah, well, by crudite, actually, I mean things like, probably grapes and maybe carrot battles, I suppose. And that that was the choice. And obviously we know how this goes. And and the children looked at her with horror. Did she get, did did anyone do a trick? Because if anything deserves a trick, I'm afraid there's someone giving you a carrot (laughs) baton instead of an enormous amount of E numbers. Um, And immensely frightening week because of the world events. Is is that what you mean? Because of world events. That's Mm. what I'm getting at because of a certain election and we are returning into lockdown. We are, aren't we? I noticed that too. We are. (laughs) 
Anyway, let's move on, shall we? We'll move on quickly. Um, is there anything that you'd like to alert us to? Anything that you've read or watched? Not so much any of that, but I was actually thinking about, I'm afraid I'm going to go back to the lockdown, but, but thinking about going back into it again. And you know, the first time, and there were some people who were, who were terribly virtuous and read all the great Russians and mm. most other people just watched old stuff on Netflix. Uh, I was wondering if it was worth making a little mini resolution, like a New Year's resolution, a sort of small reading resolution. You know, we've got we we slightly know more what we're in for, and also it's not going to be nice and sunny. Uh, would you like me to start? I would like you to start. Yes, it gives me time to think about what I'm going to commit to. I thought about it a little bit, and and in fact, I, I I think I should read something that you have recommended to me. You're always telling me how great Elizabeth Jane Howard is, and I still haven't read any. So yes, that's what I'm going to do. Should I, I read the Cazalet Chronicles? Is that what I should read? Yes, read read them and obviously read them in order. Okay. That's my resolution. And then, I, would, I mean, I'll try and do, I'll definitely do some of them. And then at the end of lockdown, you can come back and check. How about that? Well, you know, I ration them. So I'm reading one a year uh, and I, I save it for summer. You're just a slow reader theory. Is that just... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's my way of, of, of saying I find it very difficult <laughs> to get to the end of any book, which is why I do the job I do. Um, <laughs> Um, but no, I think I don't know. I don't know why I decided to do that. Just because when something is really, really good and you're really enjoying it, you just don't want it. Much like you know the finest crudité, you don't want them to end. <laughs> okay, strongly disagree about carrot batons. But no, I do know what you mean. You have to parcel it out. I have to parcel out readings of of certain books because you can't do it too often because you don't want to get sick of it. But it's a treat that you can sort of store up. So you don't have to do yours now. You could you could wait until next week. I just I just thought maybe just a, a very a gentle, nice literary aspiration. And I suppose readers could tell us, uh, listeners even, they could tell us you know what their plans are, and then we can all compare at the end and say no, I didn't do anything. I just do they have um, to be literary? Because I can tell you what um what I have committed to to doing over the next four weeks. Okay, go on. Um, but it's it's food based rather than book based. Are you going to eat your way through? I'm no, go on, eat me. my way through my library. No, I'm um, I. So we we brought up a list of all the countries in the world, and we um, plucked hmm. at random a country, and we'll have to cook the food from that country have you done it yet uh, so every saturday for the next no we're starting on saturday so different so country... every saturday for the lockdown brilliant. period that is brilliant <laughs> uh coming up on this week's show uh the tls's sports editor david horsepool will talk us through a couple of books on professional game playing including a football memoir of obsession and crucial omissions by arsene wenger and a study of the age-old English compulsion to compete. We'll also have a reading of a new poem by Jamie McKendrick called He Be Me from a new pamphlet, The Years. But first, as Remembrance Day approaches on November 11th, we will turn to Wilfred Owen, probably the most famous of our First World War poets, the national war poet, as a recent biographer Dominic Hibbard puts it. Owen's brief life and limited work are the subject of a moving and important commentary in this week's TLS. Our writer, Aideen Lynch, asks us to remember truthfully, entirely, and so to look again at the intimate confederacy, fleeting and yet, in a way, so enduring between Wilfred Owen and his mentor, Siegfried Sassoon, who in 1917 spent three life-changing months together at Craig Lockhart War Hospital in Scotland. Aideen joins us on the line now. Hello, Aideen. Hi, Pia. I wondered if you might start by reading us the excerpt from a letter with which you begin your essay, and we'll, we'll kind of, we'll circle back to it as we talk about about the man and his work. Know that since mid-September, 
when you still regarded me as a tiresome little knocker on your door, I held you as Keats and Christ and Elijah and my colonel and my father confessor and Amenophis the fourth in profile. What's that mathematically? In effect, it is this, that I love you dispassionately so much, so very much, dear fellow, that the blasting little smile you wear on reading this can't hurt me in the least. If you consider what the above names have severally done for me, you will know what you are doing. And you have fixed my life, however short. You did not light me. I was always a mad comet. But you have fixed me. I spun round you a satellite for a month, but I shall swing out soon. A dark star in the orbit where you will blaze. Uh, it's it's a it's a beautiful passage. Um, the story of, of Owen and Sassoon at Craig Lockhart, I mean, it's been reimagined and, and mythologized, perhaps most famously, I guess, in Pat Barker's novel, Regeneration. But it's probably worth just kind of briefly setting the scene for listeners uh, of how these two men came to know each other. Yes, uh, it's quite an interesting story, actually, how the two ended up in Craig Lockhart. So Wilfred Owen was there convalescing after a very traumatic experience on the front where he had been in a shell attack. And he was sent back to Edinburgh to recover, mostly emotionally, uh, from what they then called shell shock, but what we now understand as PTSD. The reason that Siegfried Sassoon was there was because he had written a letter in protest uh, of the war. Um, he had published that letter in the Times. He had it read out in the House of Commons, and he was going to be court-martialed for his insubordinates. It was uh, a huge embarrassment for the military to have a company commander with a military cross in this sort of very public role, criticizing the role of the military. But his friend, actually, Sassoon's friend Robert Graves, stepped in, also another war poet, and convinced Sassoon and the military to uh, go to Craig Lockhart instead uh, as a sort of <laughs> patched up uh, sick leave instead of having to be court-martialed for that. So he wasn't there really for any PTSD reasons. He was there to avoid being court-martialed. And it, it seemed a very reluctant choice on his part. It seems like he would have rather gone ahead of a trial <laughs> instead of having to go to hospital. But uh, in terms of the history, it means that that's where, exactly where he needed to be uh, because when Wolf Owen found out that he was in the same building, he, he worked up the courage for weeks to go and knock on his door. And the, the first image that we get of him as Wilfred Owen goes and knocks on Siegfried Sassoon's door is a memorable one. It's, it's Siegfried Sassoon in a purple dressing gown, yes. polishing his golf clubs. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favourite um, anecdotes, really, from the two of them is uh, Owen is standing at this, at this door knocking on it with uh, several copies, not just one, but several copies of Sassoon's latest poetry collection under his arm. And he's, uh, he's going to ask Sassoon to inscribe them for him and his friends. But there's one thing that didn't make it into the article, actually, is a letter that Owen wrote to his mother just a few days prior to him finally knocking on Sassoon's door, where he's talking about how much he admires Sassoon's poetry. He says, I've just been reading Siegfried Sassoon and I'm feeling at a very high pitch of emotion. Nothing like his trench life sketches has ever been written or ever will be written. Shakespeare reads vapid after these. It is nice, isn't it? So he was, so Wilfred Owen really was before he'd ever met him, he really was a hero to him in all sorts of ways. Yeah, absolutely. It seems that he'd been reading Sassoon for quite a while. And, you know, not just one copy lying around, but several in order to get them signed. Um, and as you say, he had to work up the courage to go and to go and see him. So he was a great, he was a huge figure in his life. And it must have been incredibly important to him that Sassoon was so welcoming and friendly and, yes. and ready to talk to him. The way that Sassoon talks about it in his... Um, in his autobiography, 
looking back, you know, from the 20s, he, he writes an awful lot about Owen in retrospect, whereas the material we have from Owen is very much like the letters he writes to his mother from Craig Lockhart, which is kind of an interesting change as well. You know, Owen's writing very much as it's happening, but Sassoon is looking back after 10 years. But in Sassoon's diaries, he, uh, he talks about how he just took an immediate liking to Owen. And I, I get the sense from the, the biography that he's He's quite pleased at having an admirer around, you know, someone to sort of tell him how wonderful he is and how uh, interesting his poetry is. Well, I would think anyone anyone who wears a purple dressing gown to, <laughs> to just rest would, yes. would be that sort of person. And, uh, he, he says, I had taken an instinctive liking to him and felt that I could talk freely. And it was only when Owen was leaving in that first meeting that uh, he told Sassoon that he also wrote poetry, though none of it had yet been published. And Sassoon really encourages him, you know, he just says that the last thing he says before Owen leaves the room is, sweat your guts out writing poetry. And so how, how, do we, how can we see um, Sassoon's influence taking effect then? How did he, how did he shape the style or redirect it? Mm, it's, it seems like a lot of it was getting Owen away from, you know, originally Owen's poems were very overly influenced by the Romantics, by Keats and Shelley and Wordsworth and didn't talk about the war whatsoever. They were just very flowery, unoriginal, we might say, poems. And Sassoon encouraged Owen to write more about his own experiences rather than trying to emulate the style of his predecessors. And what's really interesting is Sassoon doesn't tell him he can't use any of the romantic influences. He actually encourages Owen to think about reworking them. So in the poem that really changed Sassoon's perception of Owen, which is Owen's sonnet, Anthem for Doomed Youth, that's one where Sassoon actually noted in his biography that... It had this beautiful, in his own words, sumptuous epithets and large-scale imagery. It had impressive affinities with Keats, whom he took as his supreme exemplar. So it, it sounds like, based on the account that Sassoon gives, he really just encourages Owen to draw from his own experiences on the war, but marry them somehow to his grounding in romantic poetry. And that's why Owen's work is, I think, so memorable, because it does both things at once, and it creates something very new out of it. To say that they only spent three months together, they achieved such a, a deep intimacy. I mean, there's a sense of of private language and, and in-jokes, such as a couple develops over years. Yeah, that's very true, actually. I mean, the, the way that you describe the letters, they have this kind of, um, well, one of the things that comes up again and again, and I don't know whether it's just in their letters or, or if it's something that that occurs throughout um, Wilfred Owen's work, is this this kind of cosmic imagery yes. that he seems to draw. Yeah, really, it, that was something that struck me so much when I read them for the first time, actually. Um, that image in uh, the opening letter where he talks about, I spun around you a satellite for a month, but I shall swing out soon, a dark star in the orbit where you will blaze. It does, that, I mean, it's something that I, I talk about a little bit in the article, how it seems like Owen imagines them as being two connected particles, just like flung out in space. And... That there is a deep intimacy to that. You know, there is a, a sense that they are cosmically connected. And I mean, my own theory is that the fact that Sassoon wasn't even meant to be in Craig Lockhart, but was there by virtue of needing to avoid a court martial, also emphasizes this idea of it being sort of fated. And, you know, three very intensive months that they spent in a, such close quarters in such a kind of what was then considered a remote part of the UK, very far away from the war, but always knowing that they were not going to avoid the front that they knew they were going to have to go back because this was still August 1917 and there was still a whole year of the war left and they didn't know then how long it was going to take. And one of the nice things about the intimacy that I suppose you might not expect is that there's a lot of joy in it. 
as Thea says, there's in-jokes and they spend their time laughing and kind of slightly poking fun at some other poets. And, and, and you know, you get a, a real sense of that it's it's a sort of blossoming that they've found each other. And as you say, within the sort of sandwich between two appalling experiences, as it were, you know, you go to the war and then you have this sort of respite, which must have been wonderful. And, and also, as you say, with the knowledge that, they, that, that they're going to have to go back. Mm. And I think in in uh, some of Sassoon's retrospectives, he talks about how uh, he actually uses the word, he refers to himself as Owen's hero, his hero, and he's talking about Owen here, his hero being in sore need, he could bring him gentle and intuitive support. So this is Owen tiding over inevitable moods of bitterness and depression in Sassoon. He talks about how Wilfred's praises heartened and helped me. It was then that we vowed our confederacy to unmask the ugly face of wars. And in the words of Thomas Hardy, wars apology wholly stultify. So it sounds like it starts off as this very teacher-student sort of relationship where Sassoon imagines himself as this superior officer, superior poet. Um, and then suddenly he starts to realise that they're much more on an equal basis, that, that Wilfred Owen offers him this camaraderie and this solidarity that he didn't uh, know he'd been missing until that point. And also that the Confederacy, as you say, is dangerous, a difficult and dangerous thing to do. I mean, he's only just escaped a court-martial and to, and as you say, to be a serving soldier and say, this is idiocy, this is appalling, this shouldn't be happening, is a dangerous thing to do, isn't it? Yes. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, nuance, I think, that sometimes isn't always picked up on in commemorations of, of the war poets, in that Sassoon and Owen were both very critical of the war effort, and, and Sassoon especially, his poetry is known for being this uh, visceral criticism of military mismanagement. And they still see themselves very much as patriots. They still see themselves very much as proud members of the war effort, but they don't agree with how the war is being waged, how it's being managed, uh, or rather mismanaged. But that isn't contravening their patriotism. And it's an interesting nuance that like they're really invested in sticking to their own moral compasses while criticising the way it's being done and the, the way that their lives are being put on the line. And the way that they are remembered as these symbols of patriotism is sometimes leaving out that nuance. Because Sassoon very much saw himself as being uh, a member of the military and proud member of the military. But there's an interesting uh, ambivalence in his account where he won the military cross for bravery and maintained that he threw it into the River Mersey, but then it was later found. So there is this sort of ambiguity even in his own account of what he chooses to remember and what he chooses to say that he forgot. And, and this tendency, obviously, to uh, sort of simplify the story and, and to see selectively uh, really gets to the nub of, 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 of your piece as well. There's always been uh, always um, a reluctance to acknowledge the nature of the relationship between uh, these two men. You call it a commitment to the platonic ideal and this seems all the more you know all the more blinkered in in, in light of the letter that you read there at the start i mean the, it, it's something that i i was quite shocked by when i first started reading about the war poets i was in my undergraduate degree and, and it was uh standard curriculum uh wilfred Owen, secret to soon uh here was their criticism of the war effort here was you know automatopoeia metaphor symbolism that's done moving on next poet and it always seemed strange to me when I did discover that there was that there was so much more, which has been very conveniently left out of the narrative. 
And I think there are reasons. There are legitimate reasons for that. Primarily, this is uh, in a period of history where homosexuality was illegal. Um, it was still seen as an act rather than an identity. And as members of the military, they could be both court-martialed and brought to trial in a civil court. So there was this kind of <laughs> double threat of, ahead of them of being caught out. And so I think, you know, from the four biographies that we have of Wilfred Owen, three of them choose not to mention this or choose to explain it away. And I think that's a sort of lineage of historiography where the first biographer of Wilfred Owen was his brother Harold, writing in 1965, and homosexuality was going to be illegal until 1966 or 7. And so, you know, there is definitely uh, a reason for perhaps evading it in that story where it would put him and his family at risk. And, you know, later historians borrow from earlier historians, and so it just gets passed down. The thing that I find curious is that, uh, you know, Sassoon's biographer, Max Egremont, um, has a, a full history of Sassoon's uh, repressed homosexuality, and there doesn't seem to be any real controversy around saying that Sassoon was uh, uh, gay at the time, um, but there is for Owen. And so maybe that is also why the relationship has been left to the side, is that, you know, Sassoon is kind of, no, there isn't really any much controversy in his biographer, but with the uh, with Owens, there is. And as you say, this this isn't about fixing a label to Wilfred Owen. It's about remembering him truly, because only then can you appreciate the poetry he wrote and you know in the fullness of its of its dimensions. Partly, what we do if we don't acknowledge the, the full story is is we miss out on on the important introductions that Sassoon made, for example, that how he kind of introduced him to a circle of writers who again shaped his poetry. Mm. One of the most joyful parts of the story uh, about Owen Sassoon is Owen's Last Night in Edinburgh, where Sassoon gives him this parting gift of a sealed envelope containing £10, which is the equivalent of over £500 today, and the London address of Robert Ross, who is uh, the literary executor of Oscar Wilde and also Oscar Wilde's first lover. So Owen has this address, and uh, when he goes to London, he meets Robert Ross, and he's introduced to this sort of circle of uh, what we now know to be like a, a, well, a gay literary circle that include writers and luminaries like H.G. Wells, uh, Arnold Bennett, and uh, Robert Ross is also someone who is staying in Half Moon Street, which is a, another kind of clue to the gay literary circle in London. Um, Half Moon Street is where Oscar Wilde, Osbert Sitwell, and Siegfried Sassoon, actually, on another occasion, found lodgings in London while operating under the guise of Men About Town. So it, it, it's seen as this sort of coded place where gay men or repressed gay men could stay and be in this sort of almost secret, you know, quote-unquote secret community. And what do we learn? I mean, once we kind of accept, once we admit this context into the story, what do we learn as we look again then, at, you know, with clear eyes at the poetry? You mentioned Shadwell Stare, which is a... Um, a poem that that people have kind of returned to and 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 looked at again. Shadwell Stare is an interesting one. Um, he writes it in early 1918 when he's in London. He, there's accounts of you know Owen possibly going around the East End of London and cruising. And Shadwell Stare is, is you know sometimes read as a poem that is his experience of that. Um, the speaker of the poem is a ghost who declares that they have flesh both firm and cool and eyes tumultuous as the gems of moons and lamps in the full Thames. And so at first you know, it can be read uh, or misread in some respects as Owen walking around London and thinking of the ghost of the front. But that doesn't account for slang terms uh, where haunting is another word for cruising and ghost is a word for closeted gay men. And so there's a couple of layers operating in this poem, which ends with a curious sort of image. Uh, Owen writes... I walk till the stars of London wane and dawn creeps up the Shadwell stair, but when the crowing sirens blare, I, with another ghost, am lain. And so when you read this as a cruising poem, you actually understand it as being 
a quite radical, unexpected poem about Owen's promiscuity in the East End of London while he's on shore leave. And I think if you're steering away from acknowledging that Owen was possibly a homosexual or whatever label you wanted to affix, you completely miss the meaning of this poem and also miss an awful lot of uh, Owen's experience as someone who's going around in a society where his sexuality is illegal and certainly taboo. In a sense, it makes you wonder about that cosmic imagery again and and whether there's something about it that it's sort of him looking for a long view of history, looking Mm, to to think of this as just a brief time and a, a brief moment in which how he is or how he wants to be isn't accepted, but, you know, that it's just it's just it's just a passage in time, a phase. Yes. And there's something bigger. It's also a way of um, it might be a way of identifying people, but not as gendered or, you know, male or female or heterosexual or homosexual or whatever it is. If you say I'm a particle and you're a particle and I'm, you know, I'm going to spin around, then you can take that out yes. of it. And it's just, mm. you know, it's just bodies colliding. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think a lot of uh, Owen's growing awareness of that at this point is to do with the fact that he meets Siegfried Sassoon and has this relationship with him that we know to be a romantic relationship and then immediately goes to London where he meets another community of gay literary men of letters and suddenly realises that, you know, he is part of a, of a wider group, that, that he isn't so isolated anymore. Still to come on the show, a new poem by Jamie McKendrick and a couple of books about sport discussed by our sports editor, also our history editor, David Horsepool. Cue wisecracks about the historical nature of England's footballing triumphs. And if you have enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, perhaps you'll consider subscribing to the TLS or buying a subscription as a gift for someone else. You will find all the details online at the-tls.co.uk. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarbuzzi with a missive from Harvard University Press, a new book to fill you in on. John Berryman once said, I think that in letters, as in no other form of writing, the man appears. This seems incidentally remarkably consistent with our discussion just now of Wilfred Owen. The selected letters of John Berryman tells the, the poet's story in his own words, beginning with a letter to his parents in 1925 and concluding with a letter sent a few weeks before his death in 1972. Included are more than 600 letters to almost 200 people, editors, family, friends, students, colleagues and friends. I found many references to the TLS, of course. Uh, the exchanges reveal the scope of Berryman's ambitions, as well as the challenges of practicing his art within the confines of the publishing industry and contemporary critical expectations. Correspondence with Ezra Pound, Robert Lowell, Delmore Schwartz, Adrian Rich, Sol Bellow and other writers demonstrates Berryman's sustained involvement in the development of literary culture in the post-war United States. An introduction by editors Philip Coleman and Callista McRae explains the careful selection of letters and contextualizes the materials within Berryman's career, reinforcing the critical and creative interconnectedness of Berryman's work and personal life. These letters confirm his place as one of the most original voices of his generation. The book opens new horizons for appreciating and interpreting his poems. So the selected letters of John Berryman is out now, published by Harvard University Press. Staying with poetry now, we have a new poem in the paper this week by the poet and translator Jamie McKendrick, He Be Me, appears in a new pamphlet, The Years, published by ARC, and Jamie McKendrick joins us on the line now to tell us a little bit more. Hello, Jamie. Uh, hi there, Theo. Hi. Um, perhaps you could introduce the pamphlet before you read the poem we've selected from it. So uh, how did that come about? Well, during the lockdown, probably like quite a few people, I was taking a, a holiday from words and so I was doing I've always done some painting but I was doing a lot more and for the first time I thought I'd put them together the poems and the pictures and so so the poems um run side by side with with illustrations by you yes that's right I see there are 15 poems and each of them has an illustration to go with it uh, they don't always have to correspond too tightly in other words uh, I'm using the word illustration loosely mm. sometimes the, the picture came before the poem sometimes the other way around I see and so I mean I apologize for what might be a pretty prosaic question but um how do you know when you're when you're working towards a pamphlet versus a collection in this case it sounds like would you were you led by the illustrations and and they suggested the poems or, or did you just know from from the beginning that this would be a shorter series I think in most cases uh, it, the poems preceded the pictures but in four cases it was the other way around and I quite like the fact that it was kind of like a translation back and forth you know mm. I have never uh, except on one occasion I've never tried to illustrate uh, a poem 
before and uh, I've done the odd cover for books and things like that but it's uh, it's very different there's a much more intim- intimate connection in this case. Um, and would you like to introduce this poem then that you're going to read for us He Be Me? Okay um, I was just told yesterday by a classicist that the word uh, he be in I'm not pronouncing it right in ancient Greek is the word for youth which is a a happy coincidence for this poem. Mm. It's natural, I think, for older folk to have some envy of youth, uh, but this poem takes it a step further as the speaker directs his resentment uh, towards his former, his younger self. He be me. When I arrange the meeting with myself, predictably he, as I'll call him, turned up late. I had perched an hour on the bar stool and drained three glasses of red when he wafted in, looking like me, only longer haired, years younger, with an insouciant air and the feeblest excuse. The barmaid I'd flirted with to no avail as the clock dust gathered was suddenly all smiles. I offered him a drink as it was clear. He had no money, no job, no staying power none of which I myself had that much of, but at least I'd arrived on time, time being what I had less of, which made his lateness even worse. I could tell he didn't know what he wanted, to drink, to have, to be. A vaguely startled look patrolled his eyes, as if his confidence was just a bluff. I could have told him that what lay ahead would test a sturdier nerve than his, But why waste words? He'd find out soon enough. All the fool seemed utterly sure of was never in his life would he be me. Thank you. Um, That was Jamie McKendrick reading his poem He Be Me from the pamphlet The Years, published by ARC. One of the many things that went haywire this year was organised sport. People felt the lack of it keenly, perhaps especially football. But football didn't go away, even when it wasn't being played. We still talked about it, wrote about it and thought about it. And one of the great figures of the modern game has been thinking about it a great deal. Indeed, he never seems to stop. Arsene Wenger, who was manager of Arsenal Football Club in North London for 22 years, has written an autobiography, which is fascinating as much for what it leaves out as what it includes. And here to talk to us about Wenger and the English attitude to sport is our own sweeper and sports editor of the TLS, David Horspool, who just happens to be a lifelong Arsenal fan. David, thanks for joining us. Hello. I'm not sure if sweeper would be a correct position. I just thought it was a good one. So, you know, if you want to, you can tell me your your proper position in a team. Well, it's generally in the treatment room, but uh, (laughs) after a career-ending injury some time ago. But uh, in my my dreams, I... uh, play left midfield I could see you in goal though because you're very you're very long <laughs> I, I I was a goalkeeper before I grew brilliantly so um I, I used to spend my t- time uh, picking cruel. the ball out the back of the net yeah it was rather so first off for the benefit of our listeners who might not be completely au fait with the English football system and all its glories can you outline who uh, Arsene Wenger is I mean was for English football and what he did at Arsenal 
Yes, uh, he was one of the first or the first successful overseas manager at an English club, really. Uh, There had been a few before him, but it had no measure of success. And he managed Arsenal Football Club, as you said, for two decades, very successfully indeed. Because they're not... They're not quite like, am I right in saying they're not quite like Man United or, or Chelsea? Certainly they weren't then. They're sort of a, they were a smaller, much less wealthy club, but sort of punching above their weight. And he, he was responsible for a lot of that. Is that right? That's true of Manchester United. Chelsea's wealth came later. I think any Arsenal fan would um, tell me off if I, if I didn't point out that Arsenal are a much bigger club than Chelsea before all Chelsea's uh, Russian money arrived. Arsenal were different from that, but their their glories were a bit behind them. They'd had a period of success under George Graham, but that had ended in tears when George Graham was sacked for receiving payments to do with transfers. And so they were a kind of tarnished image and they were they were also a club of very different kind of character. They were their nickname was Boring Arsenal. They kind of ground out wins. This was this was what people said about them it wasn't quite true and it was already changing before Wenger came but he just accelerated this kind of flair that he brought to to the club so if, the, if they were called boring Arsenal before uh, unofficially I imagine what did they become under Wenger they became a kind of a team that aspired to play beautiful football anybody who follows football at all will probably know that they tried to use all the pitch all the different positions, a very fluid game, very fast moving and very much focused on attack. Although Wenger inherited one of the best defences in England and that did his chances no harm at all. I mean, there's, well, that, that, that style of play was, um, as you say, it was sort of, you know, exciting and, and free flowing and, um, you know, beautiful football. And they were also, they, they were very glamorous for a bit, weren't they? They had a lot of French players and they were just sort of they they were unstoppable for a while, and he was quite a glamorous figure while also being rather severe. If that makes sense. Yes, I mean people call said that he was professorial, by which they meant he wore glasses. <laughs> we're all professorial, then. Exactly, um, <laughs> and I I do mention in my review that an earlier England manager Graham Taylor had worn glasses, and nobody thought he was professorial. So there was something different about him. He was just quite calm, well-spoken, and he gave the impression of erudition of a kind of hinterland without actually necessarily, as it were, ever being tested on it that I noticed. Uh, But people just assumed, I think because he was French probably, that he was sort of slightly more sophisticated than your average British manager. In this autobiography, um, you talk about one glaring omission, the man you call the Voldemort of the book. Can you reveal who this is? Yes, um, it's, of course, Jose Mourinho, the current manager of Tottenham Hotspur, at the time manager of Chelsea. And the reason that it's a bit curious that Wenger doesn't mention him at all is that he had a great rivalry with him, from which he, he, he came off second best, one has to admit. Mourinho had him in his sights from the moment he arrived in English football and more often than not came out on top. And it seems that this kind of attitude that he had to Wenger constantly teasing him and poking the bear has left a a lasting impression in that he just doesn't mention him at all. He does mention Alex Ferguson, with whom he had a lot of rivalry, but he 
calls it in the book a classic rivalry, by which he means I think there was more mutual respect. In, in a sense, um, by leaving his his kind of major antagonist out, he's sort of shooting himself in the foot, isn't he? I mean, in, the, in terms of, of, of creating a, a powerful book. Yeah, I think that's true. He might argue that actually that's not the sort of book that he was writing. It is quite an unusual autobiography for a football manager in that there's not very much about the sort of nitty-gritty of football management, or at least of, of the sort of dramas that you might expect. All those kind of gossipy parts of the game that certainly the modern game thrives on, um, and you think that he's going to kind of be able to draw back the curtain on all this stuff, and most of the time he doesn't really. It's a very kind of benign uh, interpretation of his time there, which, you know, is his prerogative but as a kind of dramatic narrative it leaves a little to, to be desired I have to admit. There was a, a recent Observer interview that I saw and they invited lots of well-known figures and also readers to put questions to him and Mourinho popped up as one of the people asking a question <laughs> and Mourinho asked this a rather sycophantic question that said oh I've met you at, at dinners and things and um, surely a man of your culture and experience would, would, would should be on the board. Wouldn't you like to be on the board? Which is not really much of a question. Um, and Wenger just didn't, he didn't acknowledge that this came from Jose Mourinho, who used to wound him up for 20 years. He just sort of went, well, I, I would have liked to have been on the board, but, you know, and then just answered the question very dry. And you want to go, is he not going to acknowledge the fact that that was Mourinho? And he doesn't. Well, I, I think that he probably thought that's Mourinho uh, twisting the knife again, because um, it's a bit of a curiosity about Wenger's position now that he left under a bit of a cloud. It, the results were not going their way after 20 years. And um, he was he sort of jumped before he was pushed, I think. And he hasn't been back to Arsenal since. And he makes out that that's partly his own choice, but I get the impression that he hasn't actually been asked and he certainly hasn't been asked to take up a role. I mean, I think it's perfectly sensible not to because as Manchester United have found, having the great man sort of sitting up like a living bust in the um, in the gods, sort of watching uh, your every move doesn't make it any easier to, to do your job. Can I, what's what's the what's the the genesis of the the super manager figure? Did he, did he grow as a as a thing as a kind of a totem in line with the rise of the super player signing, uh, or is this is this a different story? I think that the manager has become. I mean, there's always been a bit of a cult of a ma- of the manager. Partly, I think, because they last a bit longer than players, even if they don't last at the same club anymore as as Wenger and Ferguson did. Players move around, obviously their careers can be quite short, uh, but managers can go on and on and on. So it's quite an easy thing for media and fans and people to focus in on the manager. But I think also the whole dynamic of football has become this idea that there's a sort of chess game or and then there's mind games between rival managers, as if they control everything to the last detail that goes on on match day. And of course, that's not in any way the case. They can try to set up the team to win and inspire them and so on. But you know, once you're over that white line, etc., um, it's it's up to the players. But I, I think it, it suits a lot of people to, to look at it that way. And I would say that actually Wenger himself 
is slightly doubtful about that. I think he, he really does believe that his job was to bring the best out of some very, very talented people. And sort of one of the few things in his book that does sort of hint at a hinterland, as I keep on mentioning, is um, he, he has appropriately highfalutin uh, epigraphs, one from Spinoza, but he also has one from Malraux, uh, which uh, I can't remember where it's from, but it says, to try to make men aware of the greatness they do not know they have in themselves. And I think that pretty much sums up his idea of the job of a football manager. The, when you're talking about the hinterland, and that's that's the, as you say, those are, those are highbrow epigrams and things. Is is there any insight into the rest of his life? And, and as I was reading this, I was thinking, is there a rest of his life? Because he gives this impression, as you say, of being very erudite. And then in this same interview, I read a, there was a, a brilliant thing. So Patrick Marber, the playwright, said to him, "What your what are your cultural highlights?" Uh, you know what, uh, or, or of living in London. So he lived in London for over twenty years, and he basically said, "Oh, I don't go to the theatre. Uh, I don't. I'm not really a music specialist. I like music, which doesn't mean anything because everyone likes music." He said, "I didn't really. Um, in in the evenings, I watch football. And when friends came to London and said, where should I go?' He said, "I only know the way to the training ground, and the Arsenal Stadium.' Do you think there is any hinterland? Well, there may not be. He may be a sort of. Um, I don't know if there's a sort of." Buddhist figure or something. He's a total monomaniac, really. Um, and he's still completely immersed in football. He works for FIFA now. And yes, I, I, I do suspect that although he was well known um, in football circles uh, at press conferences of, and things for uh, giving quite eloquent opinions on wider subjects. So people would say, oh, what do you think about the American election or something? Uh, and he would say something quite wise and quotable. Uh, so he, he clearly is a sort of, he has a wider intelligence, but he is totally obsessed with his job. Yes, that, but that's what I mean. Yeah, there's clearly, clearly great intelligence operating. And it's, but it's, it's just, it's all operating in one direction, which I suppose is why he's so good at it. He seems almost like a, a priest. I mean, you, you mentioned in, in, yeah, a bit like that. in as much as he does talk about his, his early life, he was, he was religious, he was very religious. Uh, and he sort of re- replaced prayers with players you know a neat one letter difference that the R for the L and, and he's completely devoted to them and to developing them yes yeah that's right I think I think that's right he just he he took it as a calling so it, it is priest-like I think that's maybe what I was reaching for it's sort of vocational as far as he's concerned but he also sees football as capable of giving people something extra in their lives which I think he's absolutely right about. Um, and you mentioned, you know, the lack of football that uh, there was in, in lockdown. Um, and, you know, we still can't go and watch football uh, matches at that level. Football is being conducted without fans and it's, it isn't the same. It's not inspirational in the same way. And I can usually, I'm accused of saying that after my team have lost, but they did actually win at the weekend. So... <laughs> Um, I, I really do mean it. It didn't. It didn't feel as as exciting, and it didn't feel yeah. as exciting when they won the FA Cup in the summer. It, it just isn't. You also review another book about sport and Englishness this week called "This Sporting Life." What's the What's the thesis of this one? I should be able to answer that question very capably because I've actually read the book as well as the excellent review by 
Stephanie Bajewski, but it's quite difficult to pin down its thesis. It's called uh, Sport and Liberty in England uh, is the subtitle. So that gives you an idea. Uh, but it's, as uh, Stephanie says, as a kind of archival bingo that goes on. He's so immersed, the author Robert Coles, in um, in his archival research. He Every paragraph has about 10 examples of things that he's found. It can be quite difficult to keep hold of the thesis in it, but it's it's a great book to read nonetheless because it is so full of interesting discoveries and ways of looking at things. And he interprets sport very, very broadly. There's a lot on hunting at the beginning, but there's also stuff about this rather horrible thing that used to happen in Stamford in Lincoln of a town used to get together and drive a bull through the streets of Stamford and tip it off a bridge and it would die, obviously, or they would finish it off and then cut it up and (laughs) roast it and eat it. Um, And funnily enough, people took against this awful habit, um, but it lasted rather a lot longer than bear baiting or cockfighting or any number of other horrible expressions of English liberty. Uh, but the, the, the kind of the, the central theme um, theme of this, I guess, is the idea of sport as self-expression. Yes, that's right. And and if, if it expresses something peculiar about an English view of themselves, both in kind of working class settings and, in fact, right up into upper class kind of hunting across people's land and all that kind of stuff. So that there's there's an awful lot to kind of get your teeth into in in the book, but it's it's almost it's not um overwhelmed, but it's it's almost um close to overwhelmed by the amount of uh sheer material that he gets in there. But in terms of, of, of for the reader's experience that probably makes it more exciting. And in terms of going just going back to football, um he has a sort of thesis doesn't he about what he thinks is the ultimate triumph of of English football. Yeah, uh, it's a thesis I'm slightly doubtful about. If I understand it correctly, he thinks that football introduced, because it became the national game, it introduced a kind of northern brio to English life. I love that idea of northern brio. Well, um, (laughs) you'd know more about it than me. But, I mean, I I feel that it's it's a bit of a difficult one to, to follow because, obviously, football was played in north, south, east and west, and it was sort of codified in London in the south and, you know, they played Cambridge rules and things like that. The dominant football league teams were originally from the north. Fair enough. Um, I'm going to ask you one final question, and this is an aficionado's question. Um, What is your favourite Arsenal game under Arsene Wenger and why? There's uh, one match does bring to mind... At Highbury, when we beat uh, Manchester United, uh, went 2-0 up, then they came back to 2-2, and David Platt scored the winner. Not a very kind of Arsene Wenger player. I was going to say, I thought you were going to say Thierry Henry or Patrick Vieira. Well, I suppose a more sort of late Wenger example, once they'd moved from Highbury, where Arsenal always played, their kind of Art Deco, beautiful ground to a modern uh, ground across the road, the Emirates. Um, we were sort of in, in managed decline from then on, really, because we spent so much money on this stadium. But there were some fantastic highlights, including, I do remember very well, playing Barcelona, going 1-0 down, the Barcelona of Lionel Messi and David Villa and mm. Xavi and all these tremendous players. 
And Wenger must have said some wonderful things at halftime because we did actually manage to, to come back and won the game. Uh, Robin van Persie scored a tremendous goal and Andrei Arshavin, a tiny Russian Oh, the, the genius, tiny Russian, yeah. Yeah, he scored a wonderful <laughs> goal. So that was great. And, and they were both those goals, I remember, were down the end that I sit in. Um, so that was pretty exciting. You've just made me miss it all. More. Oh, I'm very sorry, but listen, that's that's it's a memory to, to keep you going throughout this lockdown until you can all go back to football again. Yes, and many apologies to those people who can't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, many thanks for joining us and sharing. Thanks, David. <laughs> Thank you very much. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to David Horsepool, Aideen Lynch and Jamie McKendrick. A reminder that the Selected Letters of John Berryman is out now, published by Harvard University Press. And the latest issue of the TLS is likewise out now, with all the pieces we've discussed on the show and countless others, including an excoriating appraisal of Boris Johnson by his erstwhile rival, Rory Stewart. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.